on the stoops, in the alleys, and along the lanes. Children played, adults talked, and folks gathered. If visitors listened closely, they might have heard the worldly wise soliloquies of men who sat on front stoops and back porches and mused about the world's problems. No doubt they could have smelled the pleasant sweetness of a freshly baked sweet potato pie or the salty smell of seasoned collard greens. Through the center of Norfolk runs Church Street. In the early 20th century, Church Street was the heart of Black Norfolk. In his first book, In Their Own Interests, historian Earl Lewis describes the Church Street corridor in this era. During hot and humid summer months, windows were thrown open all around. Residents used these opportunities to engage their neighbors. In these public spaces, the individual became one with the community. Such gatherings wrote the history of the people as they struggled to be included in a rapidly changing and industrializing economy. The black people on Easter Sunday, they would get dressed and they walk down Church Street and the white people would dress up and ride down Church Street to see the black people because honey, they were dressed to go to church. <laughs> then when they get out of church, they walk down Church Street and show their Easter. That was Elise Balmar Brickers, a lifelong Norfolk resident and activist from a 1991 interview. In the 1800s and early 1900s, Church Street was on the outskirts of the city and therefore more affordable. It was also cheaper because it was so swampy and flood prone. Perhaps most influentially, racist law and culture dictated that Church Street was the only area that Black-owned businesses were allowed to be. Throughout the beginning of the 20th century, the city of Norfolk failed to invest in solid infrastructure in Black neighborhoods like Church Street. In the 30s, more than half of Black renters lacked indoor plumbing, and many families would share restroom facilities. Lack of accessible housing for Black people, combined with the flood of Black rural refugees now moving into Norfolk, led to seriously crowded conditions and a lot of people crowded together, surrounded by stagnant water without sanitation facilities and nowhere else to go. In 1920, one in 20 white babies died. One in six black babies died. Those death tolls were products of the overcrowding, stagnant water, and frequent flooding, which led to disease in these neighborhoods. In fact, the Church Street area has historically seen some of the worst of Norfolk's recurring flooding. This is from a 1942 account in the Norfolk Journal and Guide, a Black newspaper and one of the most widely read news sources in the country at the time. In the uptown section, certain parts of Church Street took on a river-like appearance. The unpaved sidewalks in most of the colored districts became virtual mud banks. Church Street still floods terribly, but there are citywide flood mitigation efforts underway. In this episode, we'll hear about the Vision 2100 plan, a climate resiliency document that builds on and replicates historically racist housing patterns of the Norfolk housing market. 
You're listening to Waiting Between Two Titans from the Repair Lab. I'm Adrian Wood. Norfolk passed its first municipal segregation law in 1914, and then they kept enforcing it, even after the U.S. Supreme Court struck down racial zoning laws three years later. At the same time, banks denied loans to Black families if they wanted to buy a home in a white area. Realtors wouldn't show Black families' homes in white areas. In the 30s, for middle-class Black families seeking healthier, safer, more dignified housing, options were limited. Black families with means weren't trying to flee their neighborhoods. Matter of fact, they often had strong, nurturing community connections there, but enforced segregation prevented them from improving living conditions in those places. I'm 74 years old and have lived here my entire life. When anybody asked me about living in Norfolk, my response is that I've only lived where white folks have allowed me to live. That's city council member Paul Riddick. He grew up in Norfolk at a time when the city government was expanding city limits through annexation, reaching north and east. Annexations often left Black neighborhoods just on the outskirts of city limits and without the benefits of inclusion in the city, like the premise of police protection or city sewage treatment. One of those neighborhoods was Coronado, a subdivision in what is now the geographic center of Nafet. In the mid-1950s, Coronado was an in-between zone racially, wedged between Norview, a black neighborhood, and Chesapeake Gardens, a white neighborhood. When blacks started moving into Chesapeake Gardens, you're talking about being four miles from whites. So whites started moving out of Coronado. There was a rumor that a white homeowner had sold a home in Coronado to a black buyer as revenge on neighbors they'd had a falling out with. That rumor is the context in which the first black family moved into Coronado in late summer 1955. They actually burned a house down that belonged to blacks. The county police reported that they were investigating. No arrests were made. Only a few weeks later, there was an explosion at the house of Mr. and Mrs. Skinner on their first night in their new house in Coronado. The Journal and Guide reported, Two nights before, the house had been flooded by vandals who ripped out plumbing in the vacant property. But that evidently was not enough to convince the Skinners that being human beings was not qualification enough to guarantee them the measure of security that home ownership brings. It was an ugly scene. There were white mobs in the yard, yelling at the couple and berating them as they went in and out of their new home. One year later, there was another house bombing in Coronado. In response, the Norfolk County Sheriff told the Black homeowners there just to quote-unquote face the facts that they weren't wanted in Coronado. Meanwhile, Black residents of Coronado found more direct ways to protect themselves. In a lot of instances, Black men in the community had to sit on their front porch with shotguns to keep whites from, uh, you know, being disruptive. The white Coronado residents' fear of Black people merged with their fear of economic loss. 
They thought their property value would go down if they had black neighbors. This fear was staked in truth. Property values did tend to be lower in neighborhoods with more people of color and immigrants living in them because the housing market was designed that way. Redlining has come to stand in for kind of a whole host of discriminatory housing policies and practices. Policies related to public housing, discriminatory practices of banks, of realtors. Johnny Finn is a professor of geography and chair of the Department of Sociology, Social Work, and Anthropology at Christopher Newport University. Redlining originated during the Great Depression. As part of the New Deal, President Franklin Roosevelt created the Homeowners Loan Corporation, or Hulk, in 1933 to save homes in danger of foreclosure. Hulk sent out a survey to cities all over the country to rate and map neighborhoods. The information to make the maps was supplied by individuals working in private real estate industry. Neighborhoods got rated by those individuals according to four categories based on their investment worthiness, A, B, C, and D. Green, A-rated neighborhoods were the wealthiest and the whitest, but if the area was maxed out in terms of home values, sometimes they get a B. Blue on the map, B-rated areas were still mostly white. There was low chance of an immigrant or a person of color moving in, so they got a higher rating. Compared to the C-rated neighborhoods, which were yellow, they bordered black neighborhoods and were partially integrated, so they were rated lower. Probably they included some non-black people of color. D-rated neighborhoods were the highest concentration of African-Americans, as well as non-black immigrants of color and Jewish people. On the map, these areas were red. Hulk maps were not public, but the value judgments they expressed reflected the racist, classist beliefs of the local real estate industry. They existed as paper maps, but also internal maps, alive in the minds of the realtors and banks and public officials in Norfolk. Overwhelmingly, black neighborhoods were redlined and white neighborhoods were not. In the case of Norfolk, every single majority black neighborhood in that entire region was redlined. Hulk was short-lived. It ended before World War II started. After World War II, we see the growth of the middle class through initiatives like the GI Bill, but those opportunities were mostly for white families who reaped all the benefits of government investment. The Federal Housing Administration, or FHA, was established in 1934 to build a new foundation for the housing market after the crash. The FHA worked hand-in-hand with Hulk, but had a much longer lifespan. The FHA internalized the racist logic of the real estate industry and made it federal policy through its home mortgage program. They actually had their own redlining maps that the White House had destroyed decades ago. By mid-century, the momentum of segregation was impossible to stop. Black people were unlikely to get approved for federally insured mortgages through the bank in their own neighborhoods or elsewhere. And there were massive benefits that came along with those loans that only white people could access. The legacy of the FHA's home mortgage program followed the trajectory of the Hulk redlining maps in shaping neighborhoods along racial lines in patterns that still persist. 
You can see it in the data that Johnny showed me on race and homeownership that he gathered from the 2020 census. Like, I don't know how, how much of a stats person you are. Um, but... I, uh, I have two degrees in art. So. <laughs> so not much stats. <laughs> so what you're seeing here is on the, on the x-axis. A community with the same average income that is 100% white over here and of the same income that's 100% black over there the black neighborhood's home values will be $70,000 lower than the white neighborhoods. Redlining essentially guaranteed that a neighborhood would not be invested in by the federal government. And that's what the white Coronado residents wanted to avoid. For those neighborhoods that did get invested in by the federal government, home values grew pretty steadily. Without that investment, an African-American family, like the Skinners in Coronado, would have trouble building intergenerational wealth through home equity. For the Black people and immigrants who are subject to the violence of racist disinvestment through redlining, life took a certain shape. African-American communities then were put in harm's way because a lot of the cities were rezoning areas to place dumping grounds, industrialized areas, and so forth, right in the Black community. That's Professor Cassandra Newby-Alexander. Because people in redline neighborhoods didn't get that investment from the government, that money, the buildings and infrastructure in those neighborhoods got run down. Municipalities started putting harmful stuff in those places, incinerators, garbage dumps, highways. I grew up in a community in which we had two major city dumps, one right smack in the middle of my neighborhood. This was a middle-class neighborhood. Not talking about a government housing, talking about private ownership. And then to get to my school, I had to pass by another dump. And there was no support to the African-American homeowners who had to constantly fight against the vermin trying to come into their into their homes because the city put two dumping grounds right there within their living space. This isn't just about the structures people live in or how nice your house is or whether there's rats in your neighborhood. This is about decisions that determine people's ability to continue to live healthy, dignified lives. When you're talking about the legislating, the government legislating of inequality from the, the city, the state, and the national level, there was an all-out assault on African Americans in the 20th century. Even with the harm that redlining left behind, African Americans in Norfolk still created and maintained important social organizations, businesses, and culture but then this is where the perseverance comes in. You can do all kinds of stuff, but I'm still going to rise. Because you still see African-Americans building communities. You see even more developers emerging. You see a success rate of African-Americans becoming professionals. You see Norfolk State University come into being. You see the continuation of advancement. So even with all of the threats and the challenges and the oppositions, you still see. Even with that, you see success. Imagine if you didn't have all of that. 
what could have been achieved and what the city lost as a result of too much energy being put into trying to subvert and subjugate. Black people in Norfolk didn't just let harm happen to each other either. There were multiple strands of leadership in different Black communities in Norfolk advocating for different strategies to advance social progress. Black women have historically taken the lead in organizing in Norfolk. You had a cadre of Black women who were more highly educated than any of the others who were making, in some cases, three times what they were making. And yet these women helped to organize serious efforts against the atrocities that they were experiencing. Many of them helped to create, in 1908, the Phyllis Wheatley branch of the YWCA. They helped to create an old folks home called the Leakey's Old Folks Home. They helped to create the King's Daughters Children's Hospital for African-American children. There was also Aileen Black, who challenged the racist, misogynist pay scale for teachers in Norfolk schools, and Laura Titus, who co-founded the Phyllis Wheatley YWCA. Notable in this tradition is the United Order of Tents, the oldest benefit society for Black women in the history of the U.S. It was founded in Norfolk in 1867 by Annetta M. Lane, and it's still around. And they do all the things— care for the sick and elderly, help those in need, bury the dead, provide loans to members who were refused by banks. Efforts like these were modes of survival for Black residents of Norfolk, and they were crucial. But they weren't structural interventions in a foundationally racist system like the real estate market. But the legacy of mutual aid and deep kinship and communality is resilient in Norfolk. Kim Sutterth, 2022 practitioner in residence for the Repair Lab and Norfolk community leader, told me about what this means to her in the Berkeley neighborhood. When I moved to Berkeley, I instantly felt community. Everybody looks like me. That November was my first Thanksgiving dinner. And for free, hundreds of people are fed. And I mean, it's wall-to-wall Black people. And people are honored. There's a band. There's some spoken word. It's a whole vibe. And I remember going home, and I'm in the driveway, and I just stopped, and I was like, that's the Blackest thing I've ever done in my life. And I never want it to end. Berkeley is on the south side of Norfolk, separated from the city's mainland by the mile-wide Elizabeth River. It's on relatively high ground compared to the mainland, but even still, Berkeley residents are dealing with the effects of sea level rise. But in Berkeley, those effects don't necessarily look like flooding. Yeah, all of Berkeley is in that redlining. Good pride of home ownership is evidence in the maintenance of lawns and shrubbery. The neighborhood is not adversely affected by the adjacent Negro sections. <laughs> Kim is reading from the 1939 Hulk map that redlined Berkeley. Zero percent Negro, okay. So it wasn't black just yet. <laughs> but I think it's interesting. They don't say what it's 100 percent of. <laughs> It's just 0% Negro. 
Oh, because why the standard? <laughs> Unlike when that map was made back oh, in 1939, God. today Berkeley is 98% black. In the early 1940s, Berkeley got redlined due to being, quote-unquote, the poorest class of whites, in the mapmaker's terms. The area was partially industrialized due to the ship repair yards that employed most of the residents. There were a few dumps, the roads were poorly maintained, so not desirable. Home values dropped. Over a few decades, the white Berkeley residents left, and middle-class black families moved in. Today... Berkeley is a very close-knit neighborhood, full of character, very historic. I love my house. <laughs> I can't wait for you to come see it. It's 122 years old, and it has so much personality. There are grand three-story houses with wraparound porches and bay windows. Many of them are over 100 years old. But now, a lot of them sit empty. Grandma lived in Berkeley. She was born and raised, raised her children, maybe even grandchildren. And once the people kind of, you know, get established, first thing they want to do, move out of Berkeley. I want to get out the hood. And Grandma's house, maybe it wasn't kept up. Obviously, it's showing its age. These homes have survived hurricanes and nor'easters that have torn up lower parts of the city. Being on relatively higher ground means they're now ripe for renovation, to then be sold at higher prices to affluent buyers who are being chased from the waterfront by sea level rise. The very definition of gentrification. What you will see at most major intersections are those signs that say, we buy ugly houses. Well, what I want to say is 1-800-DON'T-SELL-GRANDMA'S-HOUSE. <laughs> This process of climate change-accelerated gentrification is being stewarded by the same forces that engineered neighborhoods through redlining, the real estate market, working hand-in-hand -hand with the city government. When it comes to housing and flooding in Norfolk, because of historical redlining and racist housing policies, Black neighborhoods tend to be appraised at lower values, which makes those places more appealing for flood-resistant redevelopment plans. Vision 2100 is a document the city put out that envisions a flood-resistant Norfolk. The Vision 2100 really addresses where we see the city of Norfolk and the opportunities when we get to the turn of the century. Where should we be thinking about planning now for the future? City Council member Andrea McClellan was on the Norfolk Planning Commission when this project started in 2015. Much like the Hulk maps of the 1930s, Vision 2100 imagines where wealth will be accumulated in the city of Norfolk 78 years into the future, incorporating a map with coastlines adjusted for sea level rise. What you see is a lot more emphasis and opportunity inland where there has been a lot of disinvestment, or underinvestment, I should say. So that is actually, I think, a really positive thing. But guess who lives in those areas where there has been a lot of disinvestment and underinvestment? Guess who will have to sell grandma's house to make room for these new inland opportunities? I just saw it as a roadmap to start um, 
changing the fabrics of neighborhoods. Jackie Glass represents part of Norfolk in Virginia's 89th House District in the General Assembly. All of us know what the Vision 2100, you know, these are the, the biggest opportunity places. So folks are starting to move to those places. You see it now. I would like to think that it's not intentional, but what I see in Vision 2100 is a plan for climate gentrification. It's investing climate resiliency in majority white areas in the city, and it's setting up policies and incentives to move people into the historically disinvested areas. That's Johnny Finn again. Vision 2100, like the redlining map, represents the land of Norfolk in four categories. A, B, C, and D have been replaced with yellow, green, purple, and red. The Hulk maps and Vision 2100 all point out where to invest in work, home, and play, and where to move away from. Vision 2100 has visioned future wealth accumulation, springboarding off the discriminatory housing patterns baked into the city through redlining and other racist policies. This plays out throughout the four color-coded categories. Yellow, you guys are screwed. The yellow area on the map is highly disproportionately white. The population of the city of Norfolk is 55 or 58 percent white. And in the yellow areas, it's closer to 75 percent white. In the yellow zones, there are a disproportionate number of white residents in fancy beachside homes who are now eyeing previously disinvested, previously redlined areas like Berkeley. The residential part of Berkeley is purple on the Vision 2100 map. African-American population is overrepresented compared to the city total in the purple and green areas. When these neighborhoods have been now identified as less flood prone, that all the folks from the coasts are going to have to be fleeing into these neighborhoods. The purple is where you need to go. It's going to be inexpensive and there's going to be less flooding. The green, maybe it floods a little bit more than over in the purple, but you know, it, it's going to be dry and it's probably going to be relatively cheap. That means that those areas on the Vision 2100 map that are purple and green, those black neighborhoods, many of which were previously redlined, are now, for the first time, prime real estate for developers. In other words, while redlining maps led to white people bombing, avoiding, or fleeing areas where black people lived, the Vision 2100 map is encouraging white people to flood into Black neighborhoods. Just like it has for a century, the city of Norfolk is using maps to determine who's allowed to live where. The red is where it's going to be protected. In the red zone, that's the only area where racially the population of the zone is proportional to the population of the city. Basically, the city of Norfolk is about 60%, a little less than 60% white, about 40% black. That red zone covers Church Street. Down Church Street, the seat of black. The same area that was one of the first hubs for black community in Norfolk. These days, Church Street runs right next to three public housing communities that are 95% African American. Collectively, these communities are called the St. Paul's Quadrant. They're squarely in the sites of redevelopment catalyzed by Vision 2100. 
What they're doing, though, with St. Paul's is they're relocating almost a third of the African-American population within that red zone with that removal of black population from that area, the red zone becomes, compared to the city, much whiter, disproportionately white. And that's where they're pushing most of the economic resources, the climate resiliency resources, uh, where they're building seawalls and pump stations and all of this. This is becoming whiter. Find us online at twotitans.org, T-W-O-T-I-T-A-N-S dot O-R-G. Or follow us on Twitter for now for updates at The Repair Lab. This episode was written, recorded, produced, edited, mixed, mastered, and hosted by me, Adrian Wood. Show art by Adrian Wood. Story editing by Kelly Jones. Music by Sugarlift. Consultation and visioning with 2022 practitioner in residence Kim Sutterth. The journaling guide was voiced by Barbara Faison. The selection from In Their Own Interests by Earl Lewis was voiced by Eric Holloway. Elise Balmar-Bricker's interview is from Duke University's Behind the Veil Oral History Project. Thanks to The Repair Lab. With support from Music Theory Studios in downtown Norfolk, WTJU, their UVA Race, Religion, and Democracy Lab, and the Karsh Institute of Democracy. Thanks for listening.